Hi and welcome to episode 49 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Tonight on the panel, we're joined by Kevin. How's it going? And we're joined by Len. How's it going? And tonight's topic is more a roundtable discussion around bad software development practices. Fight! And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the idea no, was just no, to. Len. <laughs> our idea was just to cover some basic um, things that we've seen in in working with different teams on different projects, and the things that's always a pain in our side. So, run through a few things and 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 see where this takes us. So, we've got kind of a list. We'll see where it goes, but let's uh, roll with the first one. And I kind of put this one up, and I'll just put it out there. Long-running branches, inversion control. I don't know if you guys have any opinions on this. Well, what do you think of them, Ken? Do you think, they, you think they're a good idea? Uh, generally not. Uh, I used to think so at some time, given especially the ease at which um, Git allows you to branch. I yeah. guess it's one of the selling points when you just start using it. Um, however, I've, I've definitely changed my position since then. I think most of the time branches can probably be avoided. Um, you can just work off uh, your master branch or trunk and commit directly on that so that the changes get introduced quickly and integrated properly the way they're supposed to. Um, and secondly, I believe if you do have a, a bunch of work that you can't do on your main line that you're forced to branch off um, and, and to keep that branch alive for quite some time, you probably bit off too much um, and you should actually go back to the drawing board and make the piece of work significantly smaller. Um, so that's yeah. kind of like the core of it. Um, I don't think branching at all is bad. Um, I haven't used it actually in, in, in quite a while. Um, I think one useful case is if you do need to share code quickly, that could actually break your main line. It makes sense to just do a branch and ping pong with another developer for a little bit, but that should probably last like a day or two um, at most. And then it should be back on back on master. Um, and I guess another good use case is if you're contributing to open source, when you submit pull requests um, on GitHub, it's just easier doing it off a branch. So you can very easily bring in the feedback of the upstream uh, authors. And, and if they don't accept your changes, um, I guess it's easy to just keep rebasing your branch as opposed to, you know, like separately, I suppose, rebasing off master and handling your changes out of sync. I mean, come... I've, I've found that GitHub thing to be a complete pain. I mean, at one stage on Ansible, I had to maintain a branch for about three months. Eventually, I like threw it away and gave it up. But it was, it was, a, it was a pain. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's definitely not pleasant working that way. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree that long-running branches are a problem, especially if when they get into anything longer than a few days. If you've got asynchronous work happening and you're not integrating regularly, it's going to cause problems. But I also think that not branching at all is uh, is sort of going to the opposite side of the ex the opposite extreme, and that's also unhealthy. Uh, Why is that? So. We use branches regularly. We don't commit directly onto our main, our master branch. We will always branch off that and open a pull request for another person to review before it goes into master. So we're using that the branching model purely as a, just a code review right, uh, right. method. Because GitHub's code review sucks, right? <laughs> 
Well, we use GitHub's uh, Diff Viewer to be able to see the Diff, and then if you want to uh, pull the code down and uh, look at it in front, of, look at the uh, actual app in front of us on that branch before we merge the code, and we do. But we avoid leaving those branches running for more than a day or two at a time. Yeah. The, the thing that that does strike me though is um, when we moved away from things like. Uh, SVN and Visual Source Unsafe and all of those that we every time someone checks out uh, or clones a repository that's effectively a branch until that um, gets pushed back to a server that is treated as the, the central repository like GitHub every developer really has their own branch that they're working on yeah exactly so why do you need to actually branch the repo itself you push uh, purely for naming. Uh, you put it into a separate namespace for a review before it goes back into. Uh, yeah, so before so it ends up back on the main branch. branches for code review. That's that's. Yes. that's I guess, I guess one kind of use to it. Don't you guys think that the underlying problem though is that um, people are taking way too long to deploy to production? You're starting to see this. Well, and I've seen this before. Where. Um, because it takes so long to get to production, you end up with these branches where, uh, like a version or a branch is now in, in QA and that takes like a week and then, you know, another week for it to kind of get fixed and bug fixes. Meanwhile, because that's taking so long, you need this ability to kind of bug fix production anyway. These like two sort of versions of the project, two branches, purely because it's taking you so long to get stuff to production and, uh, the, the pieces that you're building in the branch tend to get quite big, and then you've got this big, like, kind of merge problem at the end. I think that the the root cause of it is is just like slow releases to production, actually. Yes, and I think part of that's also, or maybe it's exactly the, the same thing. Is it's it's this false sense of risk aversion. Like we can't change this thing now because we don't know what the impact's going to be. So we just like <laughs> build it up for, like I say, like weeks at a time before merging it in, which is actually a, a much bigger risk yeah. when you're doing that big integration uh, dance than just getting that code into production quickly. And it's like the longer um, that that the code stays out of master, the more stuff gets tacked into it and the more risky that becomes, right? Yes. And then it's almost like like you get those branches where it's going well, like a developer's having a good time with his feature and stuff, and then people get so excited they, they don't want to deal with mainline, they just keep focusing on this thing and piling more on it because uh, it feels like things are actually moving here. And then it actually just makes the problem worse when the merge time comes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah have think... you ever been on a project or something where uh, a new branch actually becomes the primary development branch and that branch ends up being deployed to production? Yes, oh yeah. Yep. Because <laughs> it's too hard to kind of go back. <laughs> because merging is just such a pain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think um, no, I lost my train of thought. You think, um, you Sorry. think um, you've lost your train of thought. Okay. <laughs> no, they're still, still in the branching. No, I've, I forgot. Oh, that's what I want to say. Um, so so <clears throat> chunk, taking off big chunks of work, um, like introducing a whole new feature onto the system that might have touch points with the existing code, I think this is a great thing where you can use um, feature, feature flags um, or feature toggles, whatever you want to call it, to offset the branching, um, long-running branch problem. So you can just 
maybe branch off for a short bit just to and the sole purpose of that branch is just to get the feature toggles kind of in more most of the touch points that the team could agree on and get that feature flag with almost no code behind it back into the main line and then people can start building on the new feature safely guard it um like because now you can everybody shares the common refactorings that are needed and the old code still keeps working and the new one still keeps working and and maybe it doesn't even need a um, a branch to begin with it actually yeah. relies on that feature toggle so you, you end up with this weird thing where you use your branch as a feature toggle like this thing can only get merged in when it's switched on and or, that's or, or kind the, of or the codes just arc in production i mean like we've got this stuff in cloud africa now which has been deployed to production but nobody knows the endpoint to it yeah, yeah and, you know, and some of the endpoints are like they've got an ACL on them that just simply says no. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Only these people are allowed. Like, and it's fantastic. Yeah, sure. Agreed. Okay, so no, no, no branches. Yeah. I do like tags though. I think tags are quite a useful thing, just to be able to say at yeah, a definitely. point in time this was like what went to production. It's almost like um, every time you go to production, just tag it so that you can come back to that if you need. To. Yeah, it's often useful to just do a diff between two versions. Uh, if, if something does break between two versions and see, be able to see what changed. Right. And have, I think tagging is definitely a good practice. Do, do either of you guys have your build servers automatically tagging your repos? Uh, no. no. Um, I would actually do that, but we had kind of the inverse. Um, the last uh, CI uh, or continuous delivery thing that I had going earlier this year, we tagged the, the Docker containers with the SHA that they came from. And then we could, um, and the build number that produced it. So every container would be tagged latest and the build number and the SHA, all sharing, like pointing to the same underlying image. So using like an so implicit we could very, tag rather than an explicit one. Yeah, yeah no. and, and uh, we didn't tag it in the on the git side we take the artifacts so to speak yeah yeah and then we could easily see between the different artifacts we get that information manually and we could pull it up it wasn't well, it's the same thing because right? you've got could... the show so you know which yeah but i mean tagging it is just taking that show and kind of giving it a name if i understand it correctly right yes that's that's yes. all it is yeah yeah but um the only thing is if but we lost a ref it becomes a ref that you can check out straight to and uh, yeah, exactly. yeah, I mean, it's completely lightweight. It's just keeping track of that shard, yeah. basically, that reference. Yeah. yeah. No, the only thing in our case that 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 if the CD server was completely destroyed or lost all its data, then we would have lost those references to whatever was committed, uh, whatever was deployed, because that information was the artifacts were tagged, not the source. Yeah, yeah. So a git tag would have been the nice next level on top of it so cool cool all right so let's get on to the meat of the thing too many automated tests right what do you guys think of like just having like test coverage and automated tests and like the whole tdd approach like i don't know what your your opinions are before i like lose my marbles and go off the rails here so let me interject quickly <laughs> before kevin can <laughs> i think I think automated testing um, and having tests does not equate to TDD. <laughs> there is split those two two apart. Um, I think um, so. So so with that said, right? I think on the too many too many test side, it's 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 really nice to have test coverage 
um, and to know that you kind of like you covered against regressions, um, you know, or, or that's that's kind of th that's convenient and it's powerful. And especially if if you've got new people joining on a project and they don't know the repercussions of the code they testing, but I don't think that needs to be related to code coverage for one. Um, I like <clears throat> it's like trying to get hundred percent code coverage is is. Um, to me, it's absolutely meaningless. You start driving out the most bizarre dances to get some statistical model to just match up, and it might have no value. And you'll get to these cases where you can probably delete code and your test will all still pass. Uh, we saw that in, in Slack last week, somebody had a discussion around that where somebody was just testing completely wrong. So it's kind of one side. And and just having a sh also like just this volume of this, um just to like five tests to drive out the different branches inside a function, uh, like that becomes a maintenance nightmare. And if you really fundamentally change something, you've got five tests breaking rather than one or two. So I kind of like less, more integrated tests and just enough of them for the sensitive parts of the code. Um, I guess it depends a bit on the language and the tooling. So if you've got like a, a language with good types um, or a good compiler and all this kind of stuff, you need way less tests because you don't need to, the unit tests don't cover the job of a type system. And um, otherwise, if your functions are just small, uh, you don't really need a lot of the, the coverage that you would traditionally think. I think if you start building like a dynamic meta programming mess, then you definitely put yourself in a position where you do need all these tests. But it gets to some point, if it's too many, that you eventually switch it off in CI, uh, or it becomes a pain uh, to maintain. You don't start running it on your own machine anymore. And it's not just that it takes you know a minute to run where you want them to take 10 seconds. It's just so much ceremony. And then stuff starts breaking and your whole day comes to a grinding halt because you've got this few tests that now suddenly broke. You know, or a handful of tests, but it could have just been one. Yeah, it becomes a kind of, randy, becomes a kind of uh, cognitive overhead, right? Every time I want to change anything, I have to change all of the tests that touch that thing as well. Yes, and there's just so many of them. If it was one yeah. that was affected, then it's easy to spot, like, oh, there's a change in the behavior of the system. Like, that's important. It's good feedback that you didn't see. Um but I mean, if you if you really make a big change to the system, you shouldn't go spend exponentially more time just updating all your tests. And I think they became too nuanced, too brittle, and too specific. So, yeah, it's a bit of a dance. But it's just I've seen that to myself. We like, and it's not even with hundred percent code coverage. It's like when I still like worried about code coverage, my target was always eighty percent, and it's almost like eighty-one percent is too high. Then you like failed. <laughs> um, but then it just suddenly, like, you, one day you blink and you go, like, what the hell's going on here? This is just too much. And suddenly what was supposed to be the safety net, discomfort, this profitable contribution becomes this big cost, this burden to bear. And then it's almost too late. Yeah. I guess then the best starting point is to delete the test folder and start from scratch with a few <laughs> ones that matter. <laughs> yeah. And and I guess, like we, we talked about with, with Joshua as well, is people don't delete this. Like you could have a whole slew of tests, and I guess this kind of where I start leaning, like taking stabs into traditional TDD. It's like when you've done all those like lower level, finer grain tests to stab out something, and you're happy with it, then you can delete it. It doesn't need to lie around, um, especially the very very small unit tests. You can have the bigger ones that start crossing boundaries. Like those are more valuable to keep around, but delete them if they've done serving their purpose. They've done serving their purpose. Okay, that's me.
All right, I've uh, given you your uh, your five minutes. <laughs> no, I, I think I agree with a lot there, but I disagree with a lot there. So let, 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 let's just start by perhaps defining what is the purpose of the test? Because in the first place, I, I mean, I've worked on code bases that have 100% test coverage and we've mandated, we want to keep it at 100% test coverage and it's been amazing. Uh, I don't think there's necessarily a, a point where that becomes um, overkill. Uh, if you're treat if you're doing TDD, uh, the the point of tests obviously it's not to have a regression suite to protect you uh, against breaking stuff. It's more forward looking as to um, you write your test in the style of how would you like to consume this code that you are going to write, and it, it, I, I think it, it's more of a, a thinking tool. Uh, a forward-thinking tool than a, a that just happens to become a um, a regression suite net later. Uh, fundamentally, I think the question is: if you've got code that you're writing that is going to run in production, then if you expect that it's going to run, then why not test it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so test it. So, so well, you can so, test it by releasing think, it, and then the, your users will test it for you. Yeah, and and your that, that's no, no, no. Then that's TDD is test driven development, not Twitter driven development. <laughs> um, <laughs> but having an abundance of automated tests isn't necessarily a bad thing. So I think when you start talking about this as having too many automated tests and the cognitive load that comes from that. When you start switching them off on CIs, either when uh, they're brittle and making one change to a test or making a change to a code causes dozens of unrelated tests to fail and it becomes a nightmare to maintain. And I, I've felt that pain and I understand that that's, that's definitely one thing that can be a turn off from testing. Um, also, uh, if they take too long to run. So... Uh, if you have to wait 10 minutes for a build to run through your full set of um, Selenium tests through every possible use case and error case and things as though it was a user, that's also going to be the kind of thing that uh, we'll, we'll run it on CI and we'll skip running it locally. If you've got a 10 minute turnaround on your tests, then that's too long. But you can run thousands of tests within a minute. Uh, that I think in a time frame that I think is still quite manageable, and if you're careful with your um, with your interfaces between objects and you know just the the boundaries that you set, you can write code that's very near to 100% test coverage uh, and not have a frustrating time with it. One of the things I always wonder about is this concept of test coverage. Perhaps you can just like help me because. For me, if I look at a method, you know, and it's got an if statement with, you know, or, or a case statement with a couple of branches, immediately there's, you know, this this sort of explosion of possible paths through that piece of code. You know, then if I've, you know, let's say I've got a, a function with an if else, there's kind of two ways to go through that function based on, I guess, the parameters that are to that function. So to me, does does test coverage mean that I'm testing all the pathways through a function? Okay, so you've, you've given me a bit of a loaded question there, but I'll answer it. 
Uh, yes, it does. So test coverage is purely just a count of how many lines of code you're, well, you've written versus how many lines of code are run when your tests are run. Now, the reason I say it's a loaded yeah. question, though, is because what that's supposed to do is give you design pressure. Uh, the, the test should be putting pressure on your design to avoid those conditions. So especially if you've got the same condition that's doing something based on an internal state of a variable um, and it's doing it multiple times in a class, that's and you're then having to write tests for each of these cases, this is giving you a, a sign that you should probably extract in, in, a, in an object-oriented system, I know you guys are working with Clojure at the moment, but uh, in an object-oriented system, at least, you should probably look at polymorphism or uh, having or, or injecting a dependency that can be called into that, uh, depending on what is passed in, what is composed together, or with what type of object is constructed that the um, that you avoid having to test through that uh, that branching logic. Uh, and, and that leads to better cohesion of tests because the tests for state A of a variable uh, live together and the tests for state B of a variable live together and you've got A and B uh, in your actual domain in in terms of you've got object or classes with those names rather than uh, them being encoded in an, in the state of a variable somewhere that's being tested such as a magic string or an enum. But that, that, that doesn't fundamentally change what you test though, right? No, but but uh, what it does do is change um, the scope of what you're testing. So if you if you've got conditions of uh, if x is a do this, if x is b do that, uh, and you've got that in a couple of places in your class, then that's a sign that you should probably have a class for a and a class for b. And yeah, no, but sure, sure, but but now you're going to have a, a test for type a test this for type b test this, right? Yes, but those would be now, you would have separate tests for A and the test for B, separate tests for B. So what, what that leads, leaves you with there is your tests for A are together, tests for B are living together. If you're making a change to something for A, you're not going to break the tests for B. And if you're making a change for B, likewise, you won't be breaking A's tests. There's a great talk that Michael Feathers did uh, called the deep synergy between testability and good design, where he shows through a few examples how uh, having a code base that is easily testable is di there's a direct proportion between the ease of testing that that code and the quality of the design of the code if you're finding that code is hard to test it's very likely that you've got poor design decisions in there well perhaps Okay, but so you know, two points there. One is uh, fundamentally the the way that you're calculating code coverage seems flawed, right? Um, because what you, what you actually, I mean, coverage means you want to test the various pathways through the code. So as soon as you get multiple methods in a call chain, and you know each one of them has any kind of conditional stuff in them, then you'll need to test those, the combination of those conditionals. Does that make sense? Uh, that does, but that's where, again, you, it, this becomes a question of design and law of Demeter. No, no, but, but in your previous example, you, you just moved stuff around. Whether you have it in a case statement or you have it in two classes, you still have exactly the same amount of testing to do. There's still the same number of decision pathways in the code, right? Uh, whether, you're using polymorphism, 
whether you're using polymorphic dispatch or you're using a case statement, the number of permutations hasn't changed. All you've in, done a, in a simple example, to, no. no in, 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 in any example, from first principles, right? Um, if if you all you're doing moving it into some sort of polymorphic structure is complying with the open close principle, right? You're saying that I'm, I'm giving myself the opportunity to extend this piece of code without changing it. That that's essentially well, that's, that's what not, that's not all you're doing, though. Sorry, no, that's not all you're doing. I mean, that's, that's that's one of the that's, things. That's it. That's all you're doing. What else are you doing? Well, single responsibility. You you, you isolating the reasons for a class to change down to a specific well, you're reducing the number of reasons a class has to change well you you, you might choose to do that as well <laughs> but i mean in terms of the 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 type well, if so, you're not doing that then i don't understand why you would be grouping a together if you've got the state a and you've got code that's related to that state and you're extracting that into a separate class then by definition you're reducing the responsibility of the the class that uh, it's, that it's being extracted out of. Sure, but you're not necessarily reducing the number of things that the entire code base does. No, uh, no. The, the the whole code base still has the same amount of behavior. It's just the organization of that behavior, the the factoring of that behavior that's that's moving around. Sure. So, so what you've got to test doesn't change, right? You still have to test all those like functions. Or yes, yes, but it changes or... the. It changes the way that you think about testing that. It, so instead of testing that A, B, and C method calls all happen in the right order, uh, you can change the way that you're testing things and check that uh, the objects for A, B, and C are instantiated correctly and that A, B, and C individually work to, uh, work um, as functions. Yeah, yeah. Does that sure. make sense? So you're agreeing with me, right? <laughs> I think we might be saying the same things in different words. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm saying that you, your refactoring and what you did does not change the testing story. You still need to test all that stuff, right? You still need to test all that stuff. Yeah. But the but the the emphasis that I think it, I'm putting on it is that it's uh, the, the TDD side of it, the tests, and the fact that you are testing is putting design pressure on you to simplify the scope of what you test what what should be tested in a single unit of test now what is a unit you know, is, is debatable, it's, but yes it's debatable yeah exactly it's debatable to say what is uh simpler right you know that, that's an open question simplicity is a uh, is a tricky thing to have a common understanding yeah, about simplicity is complex <laughs> <laughs> well, simplicity is hard right? <laughs> yeah that was Interesting, you know, we guys unpack back that. I think just for me, it was more given to, to maybe put it in other words. It's like if I could have 100 tests or 10 tests and have the same coverage, I'd rather go for the 10 tests. Okay, but even if those 10... If that makes any sense. So here, here's the problem with talking about coverage is that coverage tells you... Coverage will give you a metric of what isn't tested. So if you're hitting... 80%, you know that there's 20% of that code that is never being run in your tests, and that's where there could be problems. The 80% doesn't tell you that you've got 80% of code that is right. It tells you that you've got 20% of code that could be wrong. Yes, no, I hear you. I hear you. I'm just like, I'd rather have 
10 or 11 tests and 100 or 110 tests. <laughs> it's easier, now, easier for me to maintain and I can t take larger swoops of the code with it. Now, and I, I, from a design, from a design point of view, just to kind of close my two cents on it, it's like I could heavily TDD something out, but it's pretty much the same as a whiteboard exercise. When the idea is kind of, for me at least, when the idea is kind of settled and matured and it's happy, I'm more than willing to nuke all the uh, unit tests and just keep the high level acceptance slash regression tests in place and move on to the next thing. I yeah, don't yeah. like that idea of that stuff lying there, extra maintenance burden, brittleness. And I mean, everything else you said is like, I agree with, like it does force design pressure. And, and when, when I went through a long sprint of TDD, I came to the same conclusions, but also get to some kind of point where you naturally just start writing the code because you've now learned from all the lessons, from all the hundreds of hours of tests you've already done. There's, there's a lot of tests you don't need to do anymore because um, you kind of matured and you've got higher tests. If there's something you're writing code that you've never done in your life before, it's a new problem domain or a new kind of algorithm or something, yeah, I mean, sure, guard it a bit. But eventually it settles and then you can get rid of the lower level, finer grain ones and then have a smaller number of tests that are less likely to fall over in just day-to-day -day operations. Now, I, I think that your test suite is something that needs to be pruned and maintained. It's something that it needs to be given just as much love as your primary code base. What I think I disagree on there is that uh, I would rather have 10 or 11 tests rather than 110 or 100 or 110 tests. Um, purely because I, I don't think the, the actual count is the thing that we care about here. So if we're just talking about code coverage and say that I've got 80% coverage, uh, if I can get 80% coverage on 10 tests and 81% coverage on 100 tests, that doesn't actually tell me anything because you can get 100% coverage from one test, even in, in some code bases, I guess, uh, that actually gives absolutely no value. So I think if I, well, to kind of sum up what I'm getting to is that having a greater number of tests that uh, are well factored and are testing things that actually do matter um, and testing through conditions and pathways through that code to, that uh, perhaps would not be tested by just higher level tests, especially if the, those tests are fast to run, I'd much, more, I'd much rather leave them there uh, then, then take them out. I think fundamentally, I think just fundamentally, just looking at it purely as a number of code coverage doesn't actually tell you about the value of the test. Mm. Mm. Eighty percent does not necessarily mean that eighty percent of your code is right. Can we just can, can we, we agree on something though? Can we agree that like we're counting like the lines of code? that actually got called during the test, we're not counting the like pathways through the code. Yes, yes. I agree. Coverage numbers is kind of flawed, right? Yeah, because even though you might have executed every single piece of code, you might not have actually followed every pathway possible. And we can start talking about things like mutation testing and what that can do, although um, those are heavy processes. Uh, but Fundamentally, with it, hmm? yeah. But, but fundamentally, fundamentally, that yes, uh, the that the when you're talking about code coverage, we're just talking lines of code, not branches through the code or anything like that. We're 
And I think that is a useful but flawed metric. Well, it doesn't really mean anything. I think one of my best gripes spend an awful lot of time quote-unquote testing, and we don't really get that much value out of it in terms of the bigger picture of the system. You know, this this function itself or this method might like work 100%, but in terms of the bigger system, there's so many between functions and so many kind of possible pathways through the code that we need to double check on that often things get through, right? I mean, let's just talk for a second about that system where you had 100% code coverage. And if you if you bring it to mind, like, tell me that there were no bugs in that system. No, I, I don't think I would ever say that there were no bugs in that system. But uh, what I can tell you is that I was a hell of a lot more confident making changes to that system than on uh, code bases that had lower test coverages. But the thing is that yeah, I trusted yeah, the, the test there. The, and the point of the test, though, was to get rid of bugs, right? No, the point of the test was to drive the design of the system. There just happened to be 100% coverage. Okay, so, all right, cool. Um, yeah, I think I'm more with Kenneth in that me design is a whiteboard activity, not a testing activity. Um, cool. I, I do like the idea, though, of generative testing, and I think there's a Haskell um, toolkit which can um, generate like possible like call values given some kind of schema. I forget what it's mm, called. It's, it's quick check, and I think it originated in Erlang. Erlang was the first class to to have that, but it's now uh, kind of moved into all the functional languages, and I think it's even hitting some of the dynamic languages as well. I know there's there's one for Groovy. I don't know how well it works. Um, Kevin, I think there's one for for Ruby as well. Um, I don't uh, know if you've come yes, across it. Yes, there is. I'm trying to remember. Mutant. I just heard about it. No, Mutant's the mutation testing. There's, I heard about it on the Ruby Rogues, but it's starting to to become more popular. But I think the functional languages definitely has a, they have a big heads up um, or leg up in, in, in this one. And I must say, I'm also kind of keen to, to learn um, how that works. Cause I think that's well, Clo Clojure has insanely powerful. Well, Clojure has this now. So once, once you've written your specs for your functions, you can use those specs to generate uh, possible inputs. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to taking that first step. I know the first time I heard about the, the quick check um, scenario, I think it was the use case they talked about was Volvo using it in the software for the car. And through the way quick check builds and run these tests, they found this weird permutation where fiddling with the car's audio, the volume on the radio interfered with something else. Um, and, and not, I don't know if it was the brakes or the accelerator or something, but literally, like the changing the volume had a higher priority in the software than like a real driving thing. And, and they found it through this quick check, and they could change it before they sent out cars that needed to be recalled and put people's lives in danger. So it's quite an interesting thing to to have a look at. I don't know too much about it just yet. I think the idea is that you can have a look at what the possible paths and variables are and literally generate kind of all possible permutations for those tests or, or, or for calling those functions and if nothing falls over you still get meaningful values back and when it does fall over it can reduce the the test case down to just a specific one of the inputs that's the one that was causing the issue which I think is fantastic yeah. it's like the icing yeah, on top yeah I called you with a null and you fell over 
at this exact point. Yeah. What do you think of generative test, Kevin? It's not something I've done enough of to really have an opinion. Um, having messed with it, it's something that is very cool, but it's the kind of thing that I would leave to a CI server to run, uh, run an automated run sort of once a day or something, because it is very heavily, well, it's, it's very CPU intensive. Cool. Shall we move on to our next point? Sure, go for it. I think we've spoken quite a lot about testing. So what's that? Heavy reliance on an IDE, um, an inability to work without it or compile code, run tests and things without without an IDE. Why is that a bad thing? So I put that up not so much as to start the IDE versus text editor war. More it's just I've, I've seen it too many times where developers become masters of the IDE, but they actually have no idea what the machinery does underneath. And <clears throat> one of the things you can think of, of of that not being optimal is if your IDE is not available to you, you should still be able to be in a position that you can toy or deliver or run a command or something. I mean, compiling your Java code is not clicking the build button in IntelliJ or NetBeans or Eclipse. It's knowing that in the background, there's a Java C command that got executed one or another, or the same with .NET. It's it's what's a command MSC or CSC. What it's a, yeah, there's something happening in the background. And I'm not saying don't use an IDE. I'm saying like pull the curtains away and just like have a look what's actually happening behind the stages. And having that knowledge of what is actually going on then opens the door for for easing your ci setup now you actually know when you have a continuous integration what the commands actually are and what they're actually doing and how they differ to when your ide runs them to when you've got them on ci um, or any other kind of automation that you want to do like it's it's your ide is not a black box it's like a huge accelerator of what you're doing but like you know, know at least what it's doing because it's doing a bunch of stuff behind the scenes for you. And that was kind of my my rant there is like, and oh, <clears throat> also if your IDE breaks for yeah. some reason, I don't know, like let's say Maven packages get corrupted or, or something silly happens, you know, um, then what? And, and it doesn't mean you should stop dead. It, I mean, obviously you'll not be nearly as productive as what you're used to being. But at least you should be able to, to carry on. And that was kind of my... My sense, like, are you, are you a Java developer or are you an IntelliJ operator? And that's kind of the distinction. Hey, hey, IntelliJ is cool, man. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, no, just, it, just it really is. <laughs> I, I, I just come back there is to say, like, what are you doing? Like, let's, so maybe let's come up with an analogy here. Maybe the analogy is, you know, I want to move things from A to B. So I go and buy a bucky or a truck. I don't really need to know how that back of your truck works, right? I just move my stuff from A to B. It's much more efficient than moving it by hand. I think that, you know, that's the kind of obvious counter-argument. If I can go into my IDE and click this button and get something done that takes you, you know, like half a day to do, isn't that a better thing? Hmm. If your bucket runs out of fuel, I go, or I you go to left your lights station. on. No, but it's, it's late now. Or you left your lights on. And the battery state. <laughs> yeah. Then I call the AI. 
<laughs> so now you just sit there. Where if you just had a yeah, little sure, but bit then of, I, of it comes and I'm back to going and I click the button three more times and I've done three days worth in your work. Yeah, I'm not saying don't use IDEs. I'm saying just it. I think it's good to know what your tools are doing for you. It, I mean, they exist for a reason. Right. It's not that we should throw them away and use Notepad. <laughs> it's not at all what I'm saying. It's just like, look behind the curtains. If it's got some kind of console that can give you insight into what's going on, um, that you can actually do stuff with it. Or if you end up in some environment where that IDE is not available. Yeah. So let's say if you do use it frantically and the company, you know, you've got like a nice company subscription and whatnot, and then just suddenly the subscription lapses. Um, or the subscription verification service overseas is down and suddenly your software just goes, mm -mm, this is not registered, you can't carry on. So do you now go and pirate a copy to keep on or do you just like dumb down for a little bit and, and keep on doing? That's kind of the, I mean, that's such a bizarre case. It's, it's not even real. I just, if you want to now start automating stuff, if you only ever know what your build menu does, are you going to try and automate your Jenkins to launch the IDE and find the build button and click it? Or do you run the same commands as your IDE does? And that's kind of the the thing that I'm more hinting towards. I think there's another level that I want to reach to the, I mean, I agree with the whole point of the IDE there, but uh, other side is keeping your application running in production. In When you shell into uh, Linux server, you haven't got IntelliJ available to you. You've just got VI or Emacs or Pico or one of those. Uh, you haven't got a nice uh, IDE to execute your SQL commands in. You've maybe got the PSQL or MySQL CLI uh, available to you there. And knowing how those uh, command line tools work and being confident in the terminal can save quite a lot of headaches, especially when it comes to actually managing an app in production. So yes, you could probably get away with opening a VPN tunnel to your production server or having a, a whitelist of IPs that are allowed to connect into this, the database server or something along those lines. But just being able to SSH in and, and run your PSQL command and connect to your server and know what things like backslash D do to, uh, for describe and things like that. Um, that can save a lot of time and effort and keep your application running and make you more monies. There's two points there. One, and I, I completely agree with you, Kevin, learn the command line tools because in a pinch, it's really nice to know them. Um, the, the, just coming back to the IDEs themselves, I agree with Kevin and uh, sorry, Kenneth in one way. Or so two ways. One is because the underlying language itself is so complex that trying to deal with it without the IDE is almost possible. And I mean, I, I, I wouldn't go near a, a large Java code base without a proper IDE. I just, it, it would be a complete nightmare. And I, I don't. Mm. But then what about a C a code base that's got C tags and everything? Uh, and opening that that up in VI in a well configured VI. It's a complete is that as daunting, me, Kevin. Uh, if you've ever done it before, compared to any more of a nightmare than opening it up in Visual C plus plus. Like this, 
It's you, you, you know, it's it's like you're, you're trying to. I mean, the IDEs are really sophisticated these days. They're doing like deep code analysis and code navigation that is just not available in something like VI. Um, especially as yes, and not to mention the refactoring tools, yes, code bases. Now, you know, if if you're dealing with two thousand line program, it's very different. But you know, if you're dealing on a hundred thousand lines of Java or C plus plus or C sharp code. Not having a good IDE is is a is a handicap in my opinion. Okay, so that's the one thing. I mean, if your language is that complex as well, you have to have such a sophisticated IDE. You have to ask questions about that language, right? You know, if you're dealing with a big uh, Java Spring project, it's very hard to understand like what's going on without without an IDE. Um, Second thing I think that's a problem with with IDEs kind of more to the point is these IDEs that do code generation back into the source tree. That I find quite problematic. And I think it talks to your point, Kenneth, of where uh, people don't know what they're doing, but they're able to use like some kind of IDE to generate code. So especially things like SOAP services and that kind of stuff where they can, the IDE just points at a whistle and somehow uh, client stubs for that so-called material. Yeah, even if you think all the Visual Studios and, and VB and whatnot, you just double-click the button and you start entering the code for the, <coughs> the on-click handler and every, all the other yeah. code is folded away. And um, people can go yeah. through that for very, very long before they actually even just see the other code around it. Yeah, and C-sharp has a feature called partial classes where uh, classes can be split across multiple files. You can have multiple definitions that all kind of just get concatenated together in the end. Uh, and the designers can pipe into one file and the user uh, goes and uh, adds the event handlers in another file and it all ends up in the same class and the same you know, class namespace. But uh, living in separate files where some are completely hidden from the user. Yeah, so that's also dangerous. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's just kind of what I meant with that one. It's exactly like these things that can happen and leave people blind, and and they just don't know. You know, it's just like like said, you've got these real powerful workhorses, but at some stage, they it's almost like they you know pull a, the cloak over your eyes. So I just would encourage people to just explore a bit and see what actually happens behind those menu options and and who knows maybe that exploration and, and seeing what your id does leads to you becoming way more productive with it you start clicking on more things that you haven't clicked on before and exploring more menus <laughs> and at least understanding what the code actually does yeah yeah so i'm curious what's your guys opinion on uh using uh, template code generators like uh t4 generators that'll generate a class um uh, a class hierarchy around a database that you can get access that you've got accesses or plain objects to access your database through. I don't really see the point. I don't. And something that uh, I don't see and, the point. So something that can point to say you've got twenty tables in your database and it'll generate classes uh, that have accessor fields for each of those or each of the columns in those uh, in that database in. I think in a lot of ways, something like Ruby does that through meta programming, but you can't really do that in something like Java. 
Yeah, I think if it's meta-programmed, um, I think it's okay because it's not there and the code will adjust. Like, I mean, there's not physical code that's now like super rigid. It can adjust to the way uh, um, as your database changes underneath. And it's also dangerous because you, you lose a lot of safeguards. But if it's just a bunch of tables, um, I don't know. I don't like it. I, I think it just now your database lives in two places. If, if that makes sense. Well, um, well, if you're not a fan of that, I'm not sure what the alternative is. If you're working in a statically typed language like C Sharp or Java, uh, you need to have the, if you want to do an active record type pattern, at least, uh, you need to have classes with statically generated fields that you can access through. Uh, you can't, there is no metaprogramming to do that like we have with Ruby. Then I, then I would almost rather have a look at maybe a different pattern than the active record pattern. Uh, maybe like just the repository and adapter pattern could give something a bit more slicker. We actually control the SQL you want and the kind of return objects that you want and the kind of inputs. Okay, like but, then. but hold on. The kind of return objects that you want, if you're not generating them, through a template generator, perhaps that's connecting to your database. What no, return no, objects would, would you look at? I would build them from scratch based on the, the query and the needs, and it would just be plain data structures, um, like just structs or, or whatever the language offers. Had you know, like arrays of the hashes or dictionaries or whatever. Um, keep them as simple as possible. I think that Active Record, the way Rails does it, at least. Um, shine so nicely because of the dynamic nature of the language. But before Rails, I used to do the same stuff in, in PHP with AD, uh, ADODB, spit out uh, PHP classes that like wrap a table up, and it's a nightmare. The moment you make a change to the table, now you, you inevitably you can't regenerate the class because you've made other changes to the class and you're stuck. So these generators like give you a quick, like, you know, you're quick out the blocks but when you hit the first hurdle you just like face first back into the track as opposed to cleaning it nearly uh cleanly but, but kevin in order to answer your question java does a lot of runtime code generation it's a it's a very common thing but people choose not to um, do it the active record way because they want the strongly typed stuff that they can check at compile time yeah so in that case, you would do the generation of classes or something well, you, like um, that. You can, you, or you, or you or can you write, write them yourself. But, but essentially, at design time, compile time, you want fully fleshed out models that you can type. Yeah. You'd rather, you know, the idea there is that you'd rather have your compilation step fail than runtime fail. So, given that, uh, and would you consider using something like a code generator to generate those classes so that you can have that compile step? Um, or would you still go and hand, hand code those? I used to do that a lot with, I used to, used to do that or, with... Or, the, am I, or am I asking no, you a really. question? I mean, it's pretty common practice in the Java OO world. I am personally right now, I don't like ORMs. I think they're problematic. I don't think they're... Uh, a step on the road to happiness. <laughs> I think they're a step on the road to like just mm -hmm. increased lines of code everywhere. Um, I, I look at a database today and I see something that is very good at dealing with data. It has a, a 
my language on top of that data that manipulate that data in very sophisticated ways. Um, I don't know why I would want to try and map that into some other type system. You know, if if I'm if I'm going for OO stuff, why would I? You know, why why are people mm. still in 2016 struggling with this like mismatch between OO hierarchies and relational databases, for example? That's just nuts, right? You've you've got much better databases for storing objects in. Don't don't do it in a relational way at all. Like, why have this two phase kind of thing where the shape of the relational stuff is all squares and the shape of objects is all graphs, or you know, specific to the instances? It just seems kind of crazy to me now. I guess I've 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 taken too many hit points doing that in the past. But sure, code generation at that level, I think, is fairly common. And it kind of you know makes sense because it's so bloody tedious. <laughs> so it's quite nice to be able to change a database and then just have yeah. your entire like type system updated uh, from that. You know whether you're doing that statically or like you're doing it in Ruby at runtime uh, makes us neither here nor there. It's just you know each each approach has different trade offs. Yeah, I think there definitely is a trade off. Um, you know, on the, on the one I can check at compile time. And they have to check at runtime, right? But I do agree with you that I think it's crazy that we're still struggling with that impedance mismatch between relational and objects now in 2016. Yeah. If you're going to use a relational database, use a relational database, right? You know, stop trying to like push a relational database into something else. And, and that an ORM really is, you've really got SQL, which is an abstraction of database operations that's pretty close to English. Why build another abstraction over something that's already an abstraction of data manipulation? It's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got 50 different permutations of abstractions over the single abstraction of SQL. Anyway, that, that's my 30-second rant about ORMs. Yeah, but I do think it's becoming more and more of a quote-unquote bad practice these days, you know? mm. especially from, from my point of view. If you look at the stuff like event sourcing and Datomic and some really, really uh, compelling alternatives to this stuff that make your life so much easier. Yeah, but it's off the beaten path. So no, no. It's, it's a risk. It's not. Yeah. I mean, that's just the lies that the vendors tell. <laughs> Sarcasm. These things are mainstream, you know. Yes, exactly. You know? No, it is mainstream now. Um Though I still don't think I would trust MongoDB with my data. Well, I mean, document databases are a different story entirely. I mean, they, they're kind of weak in very many ways. Mm. Uh, you don't have any kind of joins. Uh, you have to, like, funky map uses to get anything interesting out of them. And, um, you know, like, to deal with uh, complex information models in, in a document database is tricky. Uh, but things like the graph databases that are out there are, are super powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I've had loads of fun working on stuff with Neo4j, for example. Exactly. So you can do great stuff with yeah. that. And most things can be represented very elegantly in those data stores. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, we, it, do, it does just take a little bit of unwiring and rewiring to understand it. Yeah, you have to just, uh, you have to make the effort as the user. I mean, the systems are, are robust and they're used in like super production. I don't think there's really any kind of risk there um, at doing it other than 
mm. one's ability to think about these things. <laughs> and as we know, programming is mm. not about typing or coding, it's about thinking, right? Well, the thing we do least of is typing. I think, you know, that one of the worst practices I see these days is people just starting to code right away. It's just such a bad habit. Like, you know, there's this kind of pressure on you got to code, you got to code, you got to ship things out the door. Well, what are you shipping out the door? Like, we don't really know, but we're just kind of generating code all the time. And I think that's a really bad approach to, especially to modern systems. I think that's probably the worst uh, of the bad practices we can talk about tonight is the that feeling of a continual need to just be a code factory. Absolutely. That is such a bad habit. <laughs> the The realization that the thing that you're producing isn't code it's no, you produ you need to produce something that can actually be used by a user um, and whether that means code might be part of the solution or not uh, fundamentally changes the way that you, th you think about things at a much higher level um, but knowing that you're not necessarily pushing out a line of code every minute of the day is probably one of the biggest breakthroughs that a team can make. Yeah, that's one way one of looking way. at it. But I think that what a team's really doing is coming up with a thought and they're thinking about or, or trying to form a concrete thought about how to solve this problem. Take Google, for example. Uh, Larry and Sergi came up with this uh, thought on how to rank pages, right? That good old page rank algorithm. And that thought built Google, right? And I think that most projects today don't have that. They don't, like, what is the thing, you know, how do we think about solution? What's our metaphor or all that kind of stuff? I think that is the, the crux of it all. Once, once you've got that thought, you can try to write some code. You can materialize that thought as a piece of code. But without that thought, what are you actually doing? <laughs> I think as Kenneth says, you're kind of copying stuff with Stack Overflow, you know? That's the alternative. Yeah, and you're not... Google-driven development. And you're not... Yeah, and you're not questioning. I think it's a big responsibility for the team is to question back. They, And I mean, respect for um, question where the, the, the instructions come from to make sure that it's well thought, that it's cohesive, so they engage like in, in good dialogue about what they're supposed to be doing opposed to going okay now let's take these weird words that this person wrote in a word document and, and try to deliver software and because it was so vague coming in and it was not questioned it just spews out into this whole mess on the back end where a lot of time and effort, energy could be saved and clarity could be gained by just having good discourse. Just go, okay, wait, why, why are we doing this? What is important about this? What are we hoping to achieve? How does this affect these other parts of the system? The developers might have like intrinsic knowledge about how the whole system comes yes. together and yet they don't leverage that to go, okay, it's great that you say we must do this, uh, but we just did this thing like a few months yeah. ago that you already forgot about that does this and this and there's a conflict. Um, that's kind of the one part. The other part, I guess, it's even worse if you've got like non-technical stakeholders that demand technical solutions. You know, uh, some vendor came in and sold thing and now you sit with a backlash. 
And <coughs> if the team had a good culture of discussion, that could have been averted. Uh, maybe it's not a sale directly. Maybe it's like a like a BA with the best intention in the world finds the workflow engine that's going to solve all the problems. And as we all know, <laughs> workflow engines seldomly actually solve anything. Um, and it takes years to remove them from the system if they could can ever be removed from the. Actually, to, it yeah. takes years to extract your <laughs> system back out from the workflow that you embedded it in. <laughs> and, and, and those things are dangerous. Yeah. And then that's like that that like healthy questioning it's just to go like what and then even on the technical low level details when stuff is clear it's when you do the the whiteboarding the modeling like should we be writing this test not that you know before we even engage down the tdd path it's like what are we like what are we trying hmm. to achieve now that it's been cleared out with business how does this affect us you know us as a pair or me as the solo person what questions and, and just keep questioning and when those answers are satisfactory, then you can move forward. They don't like need to be, I guess, hundred percent clear. All the questions must be answered. But when there's a, like a a cohort of them that's like adequately answered, then you can action upon them, and they will generate new questions and new insights. But it's like something we all need to learn to do. The the fundamental question of is this a good idea needs to be asked a lot. Yes, should we be doing this? Yeah, yeah. Is the CRM a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Um, I'm going to segue this into like a last small one. <clears throat> and it's it's that copying the first answer you get from Stack Overflow. Um, I'm sure we've all been tempted to do that and we have done it. or We know people that explicitly do it. I haven't seen it happen around me in, in, in a few years now. There was definitely a time when I had people on the team that you could almost take their pieces of code and like just paste a random line in Google and get the Stack Overflow answer back that they that they used. Um, and the thing that made me think about this was this silly question I went Stack Overflowing for for how to pass an integer out of a um, out of a string with closure. And I'll link to it in the show notes because it's fascinating how the people unpack different solutions and regular expressions and all this kind of stuff. And it gets very esoteric. And almost all of them have this small warning saying, don't ever use this on user supplied input because you would exploit your system for this, that, and the next. Um, but I still think there's somebody out there who had some closure code. They might have been a supporting person on a project, or it's like, you know, they're new to the industry, they don't know yet. They just grabbed the first thing, it made their code work, they were so relieved and they moved on. And in the meanwhile, their system's now open for compromise because they will like eval user-generated input. And this can be a binary inputs and who knows what the outcome could be if they didn't do this right. And that just made me tick like how they, like how useful Stack Overflows and how dangerous it is when you don't actually question every answer <laughs> that people gave and to make sure that you actually understand their solutions. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, guys. That was an awesome chat. But again, yeah, thanks, guys. I, that was a lot of fun. Mm. No, thank you. No, that was awesome. And we still have a lot of the list left for a later episode. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers, everybody.